Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. We are beginning uh, this new year with this series on hope called the Hope Quotient. Um, And we're looking at what is it, um, why we need it, and and how to raise it in our lives. And um, a lot of it's been based on um, Ray Johnston's book, uh, The Hope Quotient, which I said we ran out the first week we offered these. um, But you can still get a copy of it. And I highly recommend the book. Um, It talks about this whole idea of of knowing where your hope lies and putting some practices into your life. Um, We're calling them habits of hope here um, that will help you raise the level of hope in your life. And, And the biggest thing, the biggest thing in this whole series is understanding this more important than what you hope for is who you put your hope in. And we've looked at a lot of different passages of Scripture that talk about hope in, in, uh, in the Bible. And it's one of the more famous ones um, you might be familiar with is in Isaiah 40, 31. We're going to put it up here on the screen. I'd like you to read this out loud with me because this really kind of encapsulates what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. So would you read it out loud with me? Isaiah 40, 31. Those who hope in the Lord. Okay, you're with me. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What he's saying is that sometimes hope allows us to just soar. And, and everything flows. And it's like we're just, we're just coasting on the, on the, on the up currents. And, and sometimes hope is just the long distance runner. To just keep running and pushing forward. And sometimes hope comes down to just simply one foot in front of the other, taking that next step. Hope is the thing that allows us in every one of those kinds of situations. That, that hope, as Lewis Smead says, hope is, is the, the spiritual power that allows us to, to move forward into a future that we have no control over. And hope is also a source of strength when we feel like we can't take another step. And so last week and this week, we started just looking particularly on some very practical ways in which you can build hope in your life, raise the level of hope in your life. And um, three of them we looked at last week is just making time to recharge your batteries. That, that, you know, make sure that you're replenishing yourself. And then the second one was to raise your expectations, um, to, to begin to dream about and think about a better future because God's involved. And then the last one is to focus, refocus on that future. So those were the first three we talked about last week. This week, we're going to take the last four, and we've got a lot to cover. So I'm going to kind of go through this quickly. So um, I really encourage you to take out your note papers, um, get out a pen, because uh, there's going to be some audience participation this morning, all right? So uh, four more hope-building habits for you. And the first one this morning is this. Play to your strengths. Play to your strengths. There are few things that leave you feeling more hopeless than when you're given a task or an assignment that you're not equipped for. That's where feelings of hopelessness come in. You've got this responsibility. You've got this task. You're faced with a crisis that you don't have the energy and you don't have the equipping to be able to handle. And that's why it's so important to know where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. All of these things, by the way, are based on the life and ministry of Jesus. Because you see this in Jesus. Jesus was very, very clear about who he was and what his mission was in this world. And very often he was called into question and asked by the religious authorities and challenged by the religious authorities. But who gives you the authority to talk this way? And Jesus would have these conflicts with them on all all different occasions. One of them is recorded in John chapter 8. Jesus' answer to them was this. I know where I came from and where I am going. 
I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. I always do what pleases Him. He said, I know who I am, and I know what I'm about. I know where my authority comes from, and I know who I'm obedient to and who who I'm responsible to. And it doesn't matter what you think about me. I know my strengths. And it's important that each and every one of us, we know our strengths. Then one of the first things is understanding, knowing your strengths, but also being honest about your weaknesses. I have learned over a number of years where my strengths lie and where they do not lie. Okay? I know. Anybody know what the number one fear that most people have is? Public Public speaking. Yeah. See, I don't get that at all. That doesn't bother me at all. I love it. You know, we can do, we do four weekend services and I go home. Physically, I'm exhausted, but inside I can't even take a nap because I'm just too energized, okay? It's, it's, it's my strength. It's where God has gifted me. I love standing up in front of people and talking about his word. I just love it. It energizes me. It's one of my strengths. Now, here's something that is not my strength. Singing. <laughs> Singing is not my strength. There is a reason why I sit here in the front row with nobody in front of me. Nobody can hear what comes out of my mouth, okay? Because it's not a pretty thing. Um, a couple months ago, we had um, in the services, uh, I did the opening welcome and, and come, you know, glad you're here part at the beginning part of the service. And then I went and took my place, and they had forgotten to turn off my microphone. Yeah. So Jesse has everybody stand up, and I'm singing as loud as I can. And of course, I couldn't hear because I'm half deaf. And, and you probably couldn't hear because you were singing loud too. But let me tell you, the people in the lobby and the people in the cafe, all they were hearing was me. I had to go and apologize afterwards. It is not my strength. And I learned that a long time. It's not that I don't want it to be. It just isn't. I'm best in the shower all alone where nobody can hear me. It sounds wonderful then, okay? It's not my strength. You need to know where your strengths and where your weaknesses are. Okay, here's what I want you to do. On your outline there, take out a pen, take out that piece of paper, and here's what I'd like you to do. Sign your name. Just write your name right there on the piece of paper. Okay, okay, you know how to do this. It hasn't changed over the years. You know how to spell it. Okay, just sign your name. Okay, everybody done? Okay, now, switch hands. Put the pen in the opposite hand and sign your name. All right, everybody done? No? Okay, what did you notice? First off, it took a lot more effort. Secondly, it took a lot more time. And third, you still did a lousy job. Right? Because that is not your strength. That is not your strong hand. Okay, what what is most natural for you, that's your strength. And it just flows, more or less, okay? See, the key is when, when, when you take on a task or an assignment that you are not equipped or skilled or gifted at, it will always take you much more effort. It will always require much more time. And with all that time and effort, you will still do a lousy job. I learned a long time ago where my strengths and my weaknesses are. And, and there's nothing more frustrating, no, no more hopeless feeling than when you're faced with something that you're not equipped to do. And it just feels hopeless. See, Jesus actually told a parable about this. Jesus told stories called parables. 
And what he did was he told the story about something familiar that would help people understand a spiritual truth. One of them we told was, we call it the parable of the talents. Now, a talent was simply a weight or a measurement of currency in those days. And he told the story about a man, a wealthy man, who had a number of servants, and he went away on a long journey. So what he did was he entrusted to each of his servants a certain amount of of his equity. And to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to the third one he gave one. And then he went off on a long journey. And when he came back, he held them accountable for what he had entrusted into their hands. And, and the five-talent guy went, and he had invested it, and he came back. He had doubled the money, brought it back to his master, and he said, you gave me five talents. Here I have gained five more. Here's what belongs to you. And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the two-talent guy came. Same thing. He had been given two talents, not five, but two. He went and invested them, doubled it, came back, brought it to the master and said, you gave me two talents. Here I gained two more. Here is now what is yours. And his master gave him the very same answer. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And then the one-talent guy came. And what he had done was he had just simply buried it so he wouldn't lose it. And he came to his master and he said, you know, I know that you're a hard man and that you, you gather where you did not sow and that, that you, you're, you're, tough, you're, you're a tough businessman. And I was afraid. And so I buried my talent, but I did keep it safe for you. Here's what belongs to you. And the master said to him, you wicked, wicked, lazy servant. If you knew all of that about me, you should have at least put it on deposit with the bankers and gotten some interest on the thing. And then the point of the story is this. Nobody gets every talent and every skill. But everybody gets something. And we are accountable for the things that God has entrusted. Why would God entrust you with these gifts and talents and have you not used them? Or more importantly, why would he give you this set of gifts and talents and then require of you to do something that you're not gifted or skilled at? So play to your strengths. Hope comes when you begin to see, this is my sweet spot. This is what I know God has created me to do. I think one of the key factors in the things that we have been experiencing together as a church over the last three years, I think one of the key, key elements of it is having the right people in the right place. Gifted people using their gifts for the kingdom of God. See, that's how God designed you and me. The best thing you can do to play to your strength is is simply play to your strength. It builds your hope. And when people do that, God uses it. And that leads to the second one. Refuse to go it alone. There is no more hopeless feeling than when you are alone in your hopelessness. It's bad enough to be faced with a crisis or something that's so overwhelming to you that you feel totally hopeless at. But on top of that, if you feel like there is nobody there to help you, nobody there with you, it just intensifies that feeling of hopelessness. You need people in your life who can encourage and restore and replenish and pray with and hang with and do life together with you. Jesus did that. Jesus handpicked 12 disciples. There were crowds of people that followed him, but there were 12 that he handpicked. 
It says in Mark 3 that Jesus went up to, on a mountainside. He called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. I want you to notice both of those are important. He called them that they might be with him and that he might send them out. I think sometimes we put such an emphasis on the discipleship side of it, training them to be able to send them out, that we forget the companionship side of it. These 12 guys were very important in the earthly life of Jesus. They were companions of his. They were friends. In fact, there's a place in John's gospel where he says, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. I think sometimes in Christian circles, we're so focused on discipleship that we forget the companionship element. You need people in your lives to be with you, to do life with you. Every one of us needs non-agenda relationships. We do. Um, my wife and I, we both have very people-intensive jobs. Mine is a pastor. My wife works for the Venetian Unified School District, and she deals with people all the time. And part of her responsibility, she does a great deal of planning of, of, of seminars and luncheons and, and parties and all that kind of stuff. And then we do a, a large amount of entertaining and using our home and opening our home for ministry purposes, and we do a lot of that. And we love it and we enjoy it, but it's always a lot of work. There is one party every year that we enjoy the most. On New Year's Eve, we get together with a few of our closest friends that we all know each other. We don't have to impress each other. Everybody brings something and we just hang out. And there is something, it is the one party that we look forward to more than any other all year. Because you need that. You need places and people that you can just hang. Hope grows in the soil of community. And that's why we put such an emphasis here on being a part of a community group. Now, we know you can't force relationships. You can't artificially form close friendships. That has to happen over time. But in a community group, you get a chance to get together with about 10 to 14 other people and just get to do life together and get to learn about each other. And we tell people, you listen, if you go to a group and you just don't click with that group of people, that's okay. Just test drive it. If it doesn't work for you, find another group. But find a place of connection because you need that in your life. It's why we have support groups around here. It's why we have recovery groups around here. It's why we have a group called Grief Share for people who are suffering um, the grief of loss of a loved one. Because we need other people in our lives who can stand with us and support us and be with us. Talked to someone just after last weekend's, one of last weekend's services. Came fairly new to our church, actually. Moved here from across the country. Went through an incredibly season, incredible season of loss in his life. His wife passed away, lost his home, lost his job, lost his family, just everything. Just like all life fell apart, totally. And he said the one thing that got him through all of that was that the church that he was a part of had a community group. And that group of people stood with him, prayed with him, hung with him, encouraged him, counseled him, grieved with him, went through all of that with him. He said, I would not have made it through that without that group of people. You need those kinds of people in your life. There is something powerful about community. There is something powerful, powerful about having those kinds of friendships. Ecclesiastes 4 9 says, two are better than one. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Jesus said it simply, where two or three are gathered in my name, 
There am I with them. See, in community, in those kinds of relationships, we have the opportunity to embody grace for one another, to embody hope for one another, and really to embody Christ to each other. Lewis Smedes writes, the best church we can belong to is one that not only preaches hope for the world, but demonstrates to us that it has hope for us. We want to be that kind of church where people find hope. Third one is replace burnout with balance. Now, this is one I can speak to from experience, okay, because I went through times of burnout. And, and what happens is that burnout is a result of unbalanced living. I once had a pastor friend said, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. And the problem with that is, either way, you're out. God doesn't want you to be out. And burnout happens from unbalanced living. You ever bought a set of new tires? And, and you, you go and, they, and they, you buy the tires and they do the mounting and they put, them on, they put them on the rims and then they put the rim on this machine and they turn it up to like 100 miles an hour, whatever it is, they high speed balancing and then they determine where because in the manufacturing process, the tires don't come out completely symmetrical, okay? They're just a little bit off. So when they mount them on the rim and they get them spinning up, then they figure out if the tire is a little bit out of balance, they put these little lead clip-on weights onto the rim. And the reason they do that is that if you drive with tires that are out of balance, it's going to make for a rough ride. And you get on the freeway and you start doing those higher speeds, you know, and, and the, your, your steering wheel is going to start to shimmy a little bit. And that, if that wasn't bad enough, here's what happens. Over the long haul, if you never get those tires balanced and that continues to happen, it starts to affect every other part of the car. Your suspension starts to go out. Your brakes get out of alignment. Everything starts to fall apart just because the tires are out of balance. Same thing happens in your life. If your life is out of balance, you experience burnout. Last week, we talked about Jesus and his ministry and how, how he, he had these periods where he, he engaged and then he withdrew. There were times that he was active in ministry and then times that he pulled back to rest and renew. And one of the places that he did this was in a town of Bethany in the home of two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, Lazarus raised from the dead. Lazarus, that's the guy, okay? That's why Jesus wept at his tomb. He was a good friend. These were people that he found a place of rest and renewal. And, and there's an account in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 10 where um, Jesus goes to visit the home of Martha and Mary. And, and they're invited into, they're, he's invited and his disciples are invited into their home. And Martha is very, very busy getting everything ready. She's cooking the meal. She's making sure the house is all straightened up and everything like that. And, and Mary does not help at all. In fact, she just spent some time hanging out with Jesus. And, and Martha starts to get really angry. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, it says, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. <laughs> Martha is a living example of an unbalanced life. Because here's some of the symptoms of unbalanced living. You were distracted and overwhelmed by tasks. So she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Secondly, there builds in a resentment about those who don't seem to be quite as dedicated as you are. Lord, tell her to help me. Don't you care that I'm doing all the work? Nobody cares more about this than I do. 
then you become disconnected from your family and ultimately become disconnected from God. And what happens is you lose completely any sense of joy in your life. Those are symptoms of unbalanced living. Jesus said there's a better way. Jesus' response to her is this, Martha, Martha. By the way, it is never a good thing when God has to repeat your name. Just, just a clue there, okay? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, it's not that what Martha was doing was not important. And it's not that, 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 that it didn't need to be done. It was really a matter of knowing what needs to be done at what time. And I think there's some, there's some real good guidelines for, for replacing burnout with balance in this. The first is limit your commitments. Just learn to say no. It's okay to say no. My, my, my sister used to have, when, the, when her kids were growing up, on her refrigerator, she had a big 8.5 by 11 poster right there on their refrigerator, mounted with the magnets there, and it said, what part of no do you not understand? Okay? Now, she would put that there for her kids who were always asking for snacks. But, but it's a good question to ask ourselves. What part of no don't you understand? Sometimes, by saying no, it makes our yeses far more valuable. Now, you don't say no to everything, but you got to understand, you're, you're, you're distracted by many things. That's your problem. You're spinning too many plates, juggling too many balls. Your life's out of balance. So just limit your responsibilities and your commitments, and then prioritize them. He says, really, only a few things are needed. In fact, only one. Mary has chosen what is better. Limit your responsibilities and commitments and then prioritize them. What is more important? And then the last one is choose what is better. Because see, limiting your priorities, limiting your responsibilities and then prioritizing does absolutely no good if you don't make the right choices in response to that. It says, Mary has chosen what is better. How do you know what is better? It's doing the right thing in the right way, at the right time. That's what leads to balanced living. The right thing in the right way, at the right time. And then the last one is this. Play a great defense. Okay. What that means simply is this. That all of these things that we've talked about, all of these habits that we've talked about, are things that you put into your life before a crisis hits. It's something that you put into your life before you find yourself in that stressful situation, before you find yourself in that place of hopelessness, so that you have the reserves to be able to take on whatever it is you're taking on. You build those kinds of relationships long before the crisis hits. You, you, you build that balance into your life long before you get stretched too thin. Then you have the reserves. So here again, on your paper, here's what I'd like you to do. Draw four circles in a line. And in each circle on the upper left-hand, well, it wouldn't be a corner because it's a circle. On the upper left-hand side, put an E. And in the upper right-hand side, put an F. It's a fuel gauge. And then under each of those four, I want you to write these words. Physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. 
Now, you want to, might want to take this home and give it a little more, lot more deeper thought. But just right now, I'd like to ask you, where's the needle on those gauges for you? When it comes to your physical health and your physical well-being, are you running on empty? Or are you full and energized? When it comes to your emotional health, are you running on empty? Are you running on fumes? Or do you have a full tank? Is there a sense of joy in your life? Relationally, are you running on empty? Are you just skimming in those important relationships of your life, your family, your kids, your wife, your husband, friends? Are you just kind of skimming through, coasting through on those on empty? Or are you investing, filling your tank in those relationships? And then the last one is your spiritual life. In your relationship with God, where's the gauge? You're running on empty, or are you keeping the tank full? See, that's really where hope comes from. It's that living that balanced life with our hope in the right one. And here's the really, really, really good news. He's the only one that matters. <laughs> Jesus said, by myself I can do nothing, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. In other words, I play to an audience of one. I don't, I don't perform for anybody else. I don't do things because of what other people might think of me. I play only to an audience of one. And that's why he could come at the end of his life and pray this word. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus probably carried the greatest burden in his earthly life here. The responsibility and the hope of the world rested on him. And yet he did it with hope because he knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew where he was gifted. And he only, only moved to please his father. And in those relationships and every other aspect of his life, he lived with balance. Something we say around here an awful lot. And I, and I want you to really hear this because this is what matters more than anything else. There is a God who loves you just the way you are. And you don't have to earn his love and you don't have to perform for him. He accepts you and loves you just the way you are. We say it a lot around here. There is nothing that you can do that will make God love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing you can do that will ever make him love you any less. His love for you is constant. And that sense of love of God in your life is the octane that fuels hope. Jesus came to the end of his life, the last night he spent with his followers, and he said these words. He prepared them all for what was about to happen. He knew what was coming, and he was preparing them, and he told them all about it. And then he said this. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then you know what he did? He gave them two very tangible reminders, something we're going to do as we close our service. We call it communion. Piece of broken bread, a cup of wine, my body and my blood given for you. If you ever doubt my love for you, look at these two things. Would you bow your heads with me?
Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.